0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And heard an introduction and some weren't, and so that's the way it is. So when Andrea asked me to come and speak for a couple of weeks and asked me what I would like to talk about. I thought, two weeks? Well, that's perfect, the two wings of the Dharma, because that's two. And it seemed really simple. And so last week uh, and this week, that's what I'm talking about. The two wings of the Dharma are understood to be, metaphorically, the wings of a bird. It takes both wings for the bird to fly, and one wing is compassion and one wing is wisdom. And so the, the, these are the two conditions for the arising of the Dharma. The compassion side is the is the, the side of the heart which seeks to attenuate and alleviate suffering. It was the motivation for the Buddha to teach. And so, if compassion is about relieving suffering, it's an action. You know, in the Brahma Viharas, which are the, known as the uh, the uh, divine abodes. Um, karuna is, is uh, compassion, but it's, it's an action. And distinct from, um, well, in Pali, which is the language that the Buddha's teachings are recorded in, the word would be anukampa, which refers to the quivering of the heart in the presence of suffering. And the purpose of the, the aim of the Dharma is the release, the relief of suffering. And then the wisdom side is um, knowing how to do it. And so we need both, both wings to... Uh, um, so before you can relieve suffering, you have to understand it. You have to know what you're actually going to deal with. So I prepared this chart, and actually I didn't hit, another, I didn't hit the print button again. Um, so I have some left over from last week. I'm not sure there's enough for everybody, but if you could distribute them equitably among yourselves, that would be helpful. If you have one from last week, you can use that. It's a a chart that I put together to try to articulate the Buddha's uh, insight into the nature of suffering and the cessation of suffering. And it's Basically, the Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And the way he uh, articulated that insight was in terms of what we generally think of as the four noble truths. I think of them as the four teachings. And if you look at the the sheet, there are four columns. The first column would be the first truth. Then the second column, the second and the third. Uh, If you're familiar with the paradigm... Uh, the elements of the first truth. The first truth is described as the truth of dukkha. The word is dukkha. And um, what what the Buddha does in this first truth is to, or in the first teaching, is to list the experiences that we find unsatisfactory in life. The word dukkha is generally translated or rendered as suffering, but it really covers the whole range of everything we don't like from minor irritation and unease through um, frustration and anger and rage. and, and uh, um. So it's, it, it's well, all the elements in the truth. If you look in the box at the bottom, the first teaching lists the experiences of dukkha. Birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, and despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you cherish. Have we left out anything? <laughs> Anybody got anything else that's really horrendous that isn't covered by this list? Getting what you thought you wanted. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's, uh, was that Oscar Wilde who said there are two great uh, tragedies in the world. The first is not getting what you want, and the second is getting what you want. I think that was, <laughs> I think that was Oscar Wilde. Yeah, getting what you wanted. And and the second teaching is that the origin of dukkha. What it, what makes these things unsatisfactory? Well, what makes them unsatisfactory is we don't want them that way. And tanha, the word tanha is the buddha's word for an underlying disposition toward that that we, we come into the world with and it's it's important because there's the word dukkha some people have noticed that dukkha equals the items on that first list and it also equals something else which is the plain and unpleasantness listed in the first list, plus tanha. So a couple of examples of, of, of how this um, works. I, the first thing that occurred to me was traffic. Traffic is a drag. Right? It's a drag. Uh, well, what makes it a drag? It's just a bunch of cars. And as Ajahn Amar likes to point out, do you ever think that you are traffic? <laughs> but what makes, it, what makes it a drag is that we are in a hurry. And so when we encounter traffic, we get frustrated. So in addition to the traffic, we've got frustration. That's the dukkha. It's the added, it's the, the I was going to say value added, it's the, the value subtracted, or <laughs> it's the mess that we add into it. The way we the way we make it worse. Because there's nothing really frustrating about a bunch of cars or by being in the slow lane at the checkout stand. No. And it and and so Tanha is something it's it's an underlying tendency. It doesn't appear on its own. So if you have a preference for vanilla ice cream over chocolate ice cream, that preference, where does that appear in experience? it appears when you choose if you if you're not around vanilla and chocolate or did i say strawberry whatever if you're not around ice cream the issue of preference just does not doesn't exist it's just not there but in the right conditions you choose so preference is only apparent in behavior it doesn't have any independent existence apart from behavior. Same with tanha. Tanha appears in the context of these experiences. And the Buddha identified three different kinds of dukkha, which are listed on this chart. First, he called dukkha dukkha. This is the, the, just the pain and um, physical and emotional pain and unpleasantness that comes with life. You got a body, it's probably going to hurt at some time. You know, if, if you are uh, living a human life, you will lose things. There will be sadness, so sorrow, emotional pain, and unpleasantness. Vipara is the second one, which is the unsatisfactoriness of impermanence. Sometimes, you know, um, when things aren't going well, people will say, well, this too will pass. They don't always say it when things are going good. But it's the same, it's, it's the same truth. you know. Um, and when things are going good and they pass, losing what you cherish. We say, yeah, I know things are impermanent. Oh, no, I broke my favorite mug. You know, I spilled all over my brand new shirt. We know things are impermanent, but we don't live as if we knew they were impermanent. So it's the it's losing what's cherished and the last sankara dukkha is the the pain and 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 unpleasantness that comes from our judgment and expectations when we expect things to be differently than they are generally we are not happy about it so tanha is uh, I think of it in terms of our biological inheritance, inheritance, our evolutionary inheritance. We come into this life, boy, did anybody plan it? We just showed up, as far as I know. It, we just happened, You know, and boy, things seem to be rolling along on their own. We can monkey around a little bit here and there, but we're getting older, you know things are unfolding we don't seem you know we're just along for the ride what we bring to the table is a a disposition to survive and reproduce it's like a parallel to the being in a hurry or the preference it's not tanha is is a disposition to want things pleasant kama tanha is the need or disposition for our experience to be pleasant. Neuroscience, evolutionary biology, will tell us that, you know, the, one of the reasons we experience things as pleasant is, you know, we, well, when we experience things as pleasant, we pursue them, because we like the pleasant. We don't like the unpleasant. Um, and so we have evolved so that the things that we sort of should list in the direction of are more pleasant than not. Does that make sense? No. So these first two elements are what we bring to the world, like the, the we're in a hurry when we hit the traffic of the first the, 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 the features of the first truth getting what you want, not getting what you want well we want to get what we want no. And so the bawa tanha, the last, the last, the third element there is the need to eliminate pain and unpleasantness. You know, we, when, when we're experiencing pain, it's a signal that we need to address something. The tanha is often described, Stephen Bachelor describes it as reactivity and it's really the mixture of the tanha and the elements of the first truth that make the suffering happen. Old age can be just getting older, or it can be suffering it can be unpleasant and sad and you know a problem, but on its own it's just getting older. You know, sometimes pain is just if it's minor you know if you've If you've sat in meditation and found your knees hurting or your back hurting after a time, and then the first thing you go is, "Well, gee, maybe I need to get up because maybe my knee won't work again. You know, maybe I'll never walk again. Oh no, it's getting worse. I got to sit here another 40 minutes." And everybody's—I mean, that's all dukkha. That's all playing out. The—that's—it's the stuff we add, or it's the stuff that gets added by our disposition. So the compassionate response, you you can either relieve the unpleasantness. So if someone is hungry and feeling the pain of hunger, you can feed them. But you know, there are some times when there's not much you can do. There, There are a lot of people who spend their lives in various levels of chronic pain. I'm sure there are some people here who are in pain right now, and you—you know—in some cases with chronic illness and pain, medicine doesn't have a technical solution. So it's not possible to remove that side of the equation. And so the the Buddha says that with the third teaching, the cessation of dukkha, is the cessation of tanha, is the abandonment of tanha. This is the wisdom, the wisdom side. And he says the task is to realize that cessation. And the path, the, the path of cessation, the fourth truth, the, the Eightfold Path, is, is uh, an articulation of the way of living without suffering, and the first element on the path. I won't go through them all because we did that last week. But the first element on the path is is Samaditi, which is usually translated as right view, but it's right understanding. It's right world. It's right. It's your. It's the inner model. You know, our brains are inside this skull. And we look out and we get colors and shapes and we listen and we get sounds and we can feel our body. We get, you know, David Hume was onto this. Where is the United States of America? It's a thought. So we have this whole world that we've constructed, that we live in. This is our understanding. And right understanding is the kind of an understanding that enables us to live without suffering, that enables us to abandon tanha. So I want to talk about right view as opposed to delusion, because that's really what it's opposed to. It's the kind of of dukkha the Buddha is talking about is rooted in delusion. Yes, it's conditioned both by unpleasantness and pain, but, it, but for dukkha to arrive, arise, for the amalgam of unpleasantness and our resistance to it, you know, it it's, it's, uh, it's a compound. Tanha in the same way as preferences doesn't don't appear except in our choice, Tanha doesn't actually show up except in our intentions. And the intentions in which it shows up are greed, traditionally recognized as greed, hatred, and delusion. And underlying this greed and hatred is delusion. So delusion gives rise to greed and, and hatred. And delusion is tanha's bait. You know, delusion is not mind fog or a, just a mistake. It's something active that we do. Just like greed is something active that we do. And aversion, ill will, hatred, anger. Things, intentions that arise. And delusion is like that as well. And it, it basically means not seeing things as they are. Hmm. We we tend to believe our thoughts. And and, uh, they are generated with a purpose. The purpose is survival. And survive and reproduce. Bawa Tanha translates mostly as becoming. You know, becoming. That's our agenda. Our plan. And so we experience the world in terms of what we want. There's an Indian aphorism that goes, when a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. And for us, we've, we live in a world full of pockets, whatever it is we're looking for. You know, these days we're looking for relief from the political, <laughs> political ambience. Tough. And so and, and you know what's interesting gamblers generally overestimate their chances of winning. And we overestimate our chances of satisfaction because you know those of our ancestors who worked harder to survive struggled more if you were realistic about the possibility of abandoning and getting rid of all those unpleasant things in that list, you'd sort of sit there and you know, you're in the midst of existential angst and you would become lunch long before you had a chance to pass on your genetic material. So, we have inherited that. Tanha keeps generating Intention. One of the one of the ways of recognizing delusion. It's hard to recognize delusion. I mean, that's a big. How would you know whether you're deluded? Um, I, and my my answer is let's just let's just acknowledge. Anybody really know what's going on? Really. So after that, do we have to wonder about delusion? <laughs> no. So wh- what's happening when we engage the first the elements of the first teaching from where we are, which is beings with these proclivities? One of the signs of delusion? Well. Uh, Ajahn Pasano was asked once, how, how do you know when you're deluded? And he said, well, you're suffering. So it be suffering if you're deluded. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But most people don't recognize suffering. Sort of like you know, the refrigerator going in the other room and then it goes off. And you, it had been on all along and it's all of a sudden quiet. And you realize, or the air conditioner goes off and you go, oh my gosh, the air conditioner was on. You know, it just becomes part of the background hum. So I thought a little bit about what might be a marker for delusion and it occurred to me that the, a really bright marker is complaint. Because things are as they are and our when our reaction to them is aversive we complain. So where there's complaint there's suffering. It's not that we you know that some of our complaints might not be justified they might very well be justified. but the dissatisfaction that things aren't the way we, we expect them to be. You can actually, if you're going to, to talk about complaint as a marker for dukkha, you can phrase, reframe the four truths, the four teachings in terms of complaint. Such is complaint, such the origin of complaint, such the cessation of complaint, and, and such is the path of living without complaint. So in this in this formulation, the goal of the practice would be to figure out how to live a complaint-free life. Complaints come out of the aversion of vibhava the tanha, the, the not wanting that last the third block there in, in in the second teaching, not wanting wanting things to be the way they are, the aversion to how they are. Hmm. expecting things to be different. So the issue here is expectation, really, and that expectation comes out of the delusion of tanha. So it's not so much that we shouldn't want things to be different, we sort of can't help it. We're built that way. We're built to want to survive, we've got an agenda, we've got a plan, Each of us, you know, some means, some map of navigating our way into the future to be successful and comfortable and safe. But it's not that we shouldn't want things to be different, but to expect them to be different than they are will lead us, well, they won't lead us to happiness. Because they are as they are. You know, if you... Um, I think I talked about buying a lottery ticket last week. If you buy a lottery ticket and you (coughs) don't win, how much of a tragedy is that? Sort of not so much. It's not that you didn't want to win because you bought the ticket. But if you don't win, you sort of you know, you sort of know the expectation, you know what the statistics are, etc. But gamblers know the statistics and they just, they go back anyway. They feel lucky. I, I've done that. I know if I buy the lottery ticket now, if I buy the Kino card down, these numbers, I got them in a fortune cookie, they got to be right. the delusion is to expect things to be different, you know, just acknowledging um, things as they are without reactivity is probably deselected by evolution. You know? We'd be more successful if we push forward, if we keep going, if we, you know. Um, So I want to talk about the delusions that get us in trouble. There, there are three of them. Traditionally, right view is understood to be knowing anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Anicca is the Pali word for that we translate as impermanence, dukkha, anicca, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, Complaint-worthy items. And anatta, which doesn't get a lot of play because it's kind of an unusual thing. I'm going to go through the, the first two and then try to, try to explain a little bit about how anatta... So the delusion um, behind anicca, behind impermanence, it's not so much that we don't know about it. It's one thing to know about something. And another thing, to be able to live it. So I can know about how to hit a curveball. You know, when my son was 12, he said, you can't hit my curveball. And I went, well, well I couldn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, I knew how. I played baseball when I was in, in school. And, I, you know, I knew how to, but I just couldn't do it. We know things are impermanent. Um, so, why not just appreciative joy of what's present in the present moment? Because we've got a plan. And it's a deep plan for advancement and success in the world. Becoming, pursuing something, a future. Rather than being content, we've got a plan, we've got something in mind. recognizing dukkha well you know we 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 have a delusion of satisfaction and and it's interesting because of the confusion that comes when you identify an experiential venue for dukkha you know not getting what you want or pain sorrow dukkha appears in these experiences So when you say there's going to be an end to dukkha, people then think, well, there has to be an end to old age, an end to sickness and death, an end to birth. But that's mistaking. It's it's not the end to traffic. It's the end of traffic being a drag. It's not the end of old age. It's the end of old age being a problem, or sorrow being a problem, or not getting what you want being a problem. Why not dispassion? Well, you know, we think we've got a better chance than we do of ending dukkha. And when you talk about ending dukkha, you look at that list and you say, wouldn't that be great? If I get to be enlightened, then I won't have dukkha anymore. And you look at that list and boy, wouldn't we like to not have birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, da-da-da-da-da. Wouldn't that be great? Dogen, who's a Japanese uh, Zen Master from four hundred years ago, I guess, said, "Delusion is delusion about enlightenment. Enlightenment is only enlightenment about delusion. <laughs> if we expect, if, you know, if we expect to eliminate pain." Stephen Batchelor says, well, you know, the Buddha got old and, and sick and died, so he clearly didn't overcome Dukkha. Because in his, in his vision, the Buddha defined Dukkha as the elements in that first truth. But Dukkha is an amalgam. Those elements will exist. They're pain, painful and unpleasant, and we can be left with them. Those things come with the territory, but we can find out, we can figure out how not to make things worse. I want to talk about anatta, which is the third of the elements that we regard as part of the right view, right understanding, the understanding that enables us to live without suffering. And anatta is, oh my gosh, there's so much confusion about it. So I'm going to take a crack at it and see if uh, we can all w- walk out if we're enlightened about, about delusion. Or if we'll still be deluded about. So the word anatta means, you no, know, atman, basically, anatta. In the tradition, in the, in the spiritual understanding of the time, which was the Brahminical vision of the universe and life, there was a spirit, some kind of underlying essence to all things, the unity of all things at all levels, spiritual, beyond perception, something transcendent. And because each of us is a part of that oneness, each of us has a spark of the divine in us. And that spark was called Atman, And this was the soul or the the core of each of us. And in the Brahminical understanding, Atman was Brahman. We are one with all, and all our practice is to realize that oneness. And that was how practice and study was aimed at the time. The Buddha said, Anatta no Atman. No, no, and it's been translated now, we translate it as no-self or not-self. I think they both come out the same, but nobody quite knows what that means. So let me me say, not-self, if we're going to consider not-self, any manifestation, anything that you can experience is impermanent. subject to change, not consistent, not our self, not a self. Nothing that w- we can experience is our self. So if everything is not self, what are we left with? You could also get there with no self. You could say there is there's nothing that is an entity, no self. And, and sometimes people get anxious and say, well, you've got to be somebody before you can be nobody. And there's lots of therapeutic objections to suggesting no self. But really, it's not no self. It's empty self. So the Buddha articulated it somewhat. It was, it was um, spelled out in a lot more detail by a, um, an Indian philosopher named Nagarjuna. And in, in, in his teachings, his, his um, uh, exploration, he, he talked about shunyata, em- emptiness. And what he means by emptiness, oh, if all things are impermanent, everything is impermanent. If all things are impermanent, nothing stays the same, everything is in change then there can't be anything anywhere. If you look at this and say, piece of paper, the molecules in this were not a piece of paper 50 years ago. They were somewhere else. To say it is a piece of paper is a snapshot, a conceptual snapshot of this present moment experience. But this paper will not be paper, certainly, in 100 years, almost. Right? I mean... Everything, some things change faster, some things change slower, but there's no thing, if there was a thing, it would stay the same. In what way are you the same as you were when you were 12? We sort of think, well, you know, uh, it's me. (laughs) But just figure out in in what way how it might be if if you then and you now are different. In what way are you the same? So there's only changing, unfolding experience. Now in our brain, we create this map. The neuroscientists call it inner model, a cognitive map. You know our 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 view, our understanding. And the way, and, and it's created to help us survive. It's not created necessarily to give us an a, a metaphysically true vision of what's, what we're in the midst of. You know. And the linguistic properties of our thinking are that we have nouns and verbs. Nouns are things. Thing thingness exists in language. It's a conceptual overlay in a way that we, well, we see this as a piece of paper. You know, we can't not see it as a piece of paper, because it's not just the, the map is not the territory, you know, which is you know one of the that the first law of semantics: a map is not the territory. But the territory always comes with a map. If it's territory, it comes with a map. The map also is territory. The, the the thing that we do in our mind is to make the nouns is to is to project reality onto them, metaphysical reality onto them. Somehow they are real. You know, it's called it's a process, it's something called reification. We make something into a a concept into a thing, and we, we assume that, that the thing is, is somehow real. But if everything is changing, nothing stays put. We have the conceptual overlay that helps us survive and we can't do without it, but it's basically delusional. I mean, if we don't know what's going on at all, I mean, <laughs> all of the mental construct we've got is based on quicksand but really the task of our understanding is to help us survive and get ahead and advance our agenda the problem is that when we think of a thing we assume there's some sort of essence there so what is the essence of sugar It's sweet we don't say it's white but it comes well with what you might consider a side effect. Calories. So what is the essence of sugar? Is it calories or is it sweet? You know, sometimes if you need a boost, you're into it for the calories. You know. We take drugs for various things, but they come with side effects. And why call it a side effect? It's just because the intended purpose is a pocket. You know what I mean? It's what we're looking for. It's, you know, it's one of the pickpockets' pockets. Is we, want the, we want the benefit without the side effects. All right, look, at the, look at the Brexit vote. It was a, a, an expression of identity, but it came with side effects. Because nothing is separate from anything. Everything is embedded in everything else. When you pull one thread, you get everything comes with it. But our, in our mind, there's an essence that we're grabbing. If only I had that, then everything would be OK. But really, there's nothing distinct to grasp at, because everything is embedded. Everything is embedded. You know that the, the iron in your blood in the hemoglobin in your blood could only have been created in a supernova. Because that's how the heavier metals happen. So, you know, we're, we're <laughs> just the, the passing. There's nothing to grasp at. Unless we want to grasp at the side effects. But usually those, we don't like them. Hmm. So if our expectation, if we can see through our expectation of satisfaction, our expectation that if we just get this, we, we actually, when we grasp, we're grasping something. And the expectation that there would be satisfaction at the end we would suffer a lot less. If the delusion of Tanha, that satisfaction is possible, that we can live forever, we'll die trying. Or we'll make up something. <laughs> we'll make up a story about you know, how we'll live forever. Not only will we live forever, we can't do anything about it. So if we can if we can regard our expectations and our judgments, which are the the root cause of complaint, if we can regard them as some as as they are, as they're rooted in us, we'll brew up a lot less dukkha in the unpleasantness of our lives. And so the 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 teaching of the Buddha is that tanha. The removal of Tanha from Dukkha brings an end to Dukkha. And the removal of the unpleasantness can bring an end to Dukkha. traditional compassionate uh, behavior is to attend to people's pain, to give them comfort when they're lonely or grieving, to give them Know, medication when they're in pain, and to provide some insight into the um, into the way dukkha gets constructed, so that we suffer less, and maybe come to the end of suffering. To come to the end of suffering would be to come to the end of. Um, Falling for the bait that tanha offers up, that satisfaction is possible. It's not that pleasantness isn't nice and that it won't come our way sometimes. It does come our way sometimes. And sometimes it comes our way because we're striving for it and sometimes it comes our way accidentally. Probably is not under our control. So the two wings of the Dharma are both necessary for, for the Dharma to manifest compassion and wisdom. So let me pause and see. I've covered just a huge amount of territory. I'm not sure that it's all clear, but I f- thought I would give you guys a chance to say, what? <laughs> is there any of that or is everybody all <laughs> healed up? Don't know. <clears throat> OK. Um, I don't know if, if this is coming out of left field, but um, so, sometimes in my meditations, I search for some essential part of me that I might consider a self. Mm-hmm. And um, in my searchings, I've discovered that the closest thing I can find to an unchanging part of me is mm-hmm. awareness. Uh huh, and is I would I would I would note that awareness always has an object, mm-hmm. and the object is always changing. True, and so awareness is is you know it's um, uh, a, a dependently arisen phenomenon, vijnana, and nama rupa. The Buddha vijnana is uh, translated as consciousness. Namarupa name form. That's the world we live in. It's the territory that comes with a map. Name form. Consciousness and name form depend on each other, the Buddha says. The same way two sheaves of wheat support themselves in the field, leaning against each other. The, the two, if if Nama Rupa is gone, what is there to be conscious of? So consciousness is a dependently arisen uh, phenomenon. Thanks. That really clears things up for me. Oh, my gosh. Anything else? Oh, please. Ed. This seems to be harder to apply when you take it to the limit of pain that's not mild pain, or death. Uh, you've said that the Tana is what we're wired for. It's it's mm-hmm. part of our evolution. Yeah, and that's how I understand it. it. And That makes a lot of sense. It seems compelling. It makes it hard to see how we're going to get rid of uh, or, yeah. or, or, or somehow escape the the, the pain of, of the really big ones. Okay, so let me suggest a couple things. First of all, tanha is, is rooted in our biology is the flight or fight response. It's rooted deep in the amygdala. It's, it's part of the reptilian response. It's not those neurological processes aren't accessible to conscious attention. We can't do anything about it. You see a lion coming at you, it's Flight or fight, and it happens before you know it. Actually, neuroscience suggests that all intention occurs about 200 milliseconds before we know it. You know, your foot hits the brake really fast when somebody cuts in on you, and then you, and then the adrenaline, (laughs) you get the adrenaline jolt afterwards. You know, the foot hits the brake before Before, you know, it's just automatic. You don't think about it. It just happens. So in that case, there there are two things. First of all, once it's underway, right effort says, abandoning those painful, those dukkha-laced experiences uh, that have arisen. The idea here would be to learn how to notice them soon. Did I tell the story of my dog last week? Walking my dog? You know, my dog, if I, if I intervene early on, my dog is really well behaved. But if I let her get really excited and go, then I have to yell and... Enough. Growl. You know. So the idea is, with practice, we can learn to recognize those intentions that arise in us before we can even do anything about them. But on the side of, that's handling the Vibhava Tanha. Once Vibhava Tanha has, uh, has, uh, has kicked in, once our aversion, once, once that's kicked in, what we need to do is to recognize it and back off if we can. But on the delusion side, at the point where we, it's not just enough to know that our self is empty, but when we live that emptiness, when we look out and see emptiness, when we live that emptiness as an experience, then we don't see things as a threat. We don't regard things as a threat in the same way. And so the amygdala doesn't get triggered. You know, a lot of the anxiety that, that, that many people feel is a response to some diffuse set of thoughts. It's a reaction to that. When you see them just as thoughts, then no need to be anxious about them. So it's the, the, the idea here is to see through the delusion of permanence, satisfaction, and substantiality. When those three things are built into the way we regard the world, we see our experience as impermanent. We don't, if you, yeah, we know that it's impermanent, but when we lose something that we thought we we get upset. So we know about it. I know about how to hit the curve ball, I can't do it. If you recognize complaint as a marker, it may be one thing to say, okay, I, I know what I've gotta do, I know what my task is, figure out how to live complaint free, but that doesn't mean it's easy to do because Oh my God! You turn on the TV, and what is there, to, you know? What is there to like? <laughs> True. So aside from not turning on the TV, mm-hmm. what would be one pithy? Do this. Oh, I wouldn't. Oh, don't. For I would for say, us. don't, don't cling. Yeah, but can you be more specific? So um, we all walk don't have out to the door. The when we all walk out the door, mm-hmm. and we're trying to say, "Well, I heard a lot of stuff about the stuff on the chart. How do I do it?" So this is now I know how it is to hit the curveball. How do I learn? Okay. to hit the curve. Well, the elements, the elements on, on the eightfold path. The, the, the instruction about the path is that it's to be cultivated. That means it's to be practiced. The big elements here, I would think, would be uh, the meditation elements, because that's training ourselves to learn how to pay attention to our experience. That's how you get better at noticing your experience the more you practice looking at it. One of my early teachers once said, if you want to know how your mind works, sit down and watch it. So if you once once you become familiar with how it works, so that's that's an important element, and then right view is really important. It's to be cultivated. It's not just anicca check, dukkha check, anattā check. Okay, got it. Now I'm ready to move on. You know. It means to cultivate right view means to change the way you understand things from from a deluded understanding, in which we believe our thoughts and think that we can't do without them, but we ought ought to at least know that they're problematic. So cultivating right view, there are ways of doing that. Some study will help. working with your, with, and, and, and look to the cultivation of an understanding of Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta particularly. The fruit of the practice, the goal of the practice, as I understand it, is right speech, right action, right livelihood. Can we live without, speak, act, and assemble a life that doesn't cause ourselves and others suffering? That's, if we can, so what we want to do, it's not like, I mean, often right speech, right action, right livelihood gets dismissed as just don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, you know, don't commit adultery, don't have wine. Nobody ever talks about spirits, wine, don't, you know, no drugs or alcohol, although in hospice, what is it? You know, drugs to the point of heedlessness. I have a friend who spent a week she's having trouble and spent some time in pain that dilated and, and nothing could nothing morphine couldn't cut pretty amazing but there are times when when right medication you know, so so the, the buddha what you should do is cultivate the Eightfold Path. That's the Buddha's program. Figure it out. The elements of the path should be as familiar to you as your fingers. There's only five of those. Well, I guess there's ten. But they should, you should, you know, to work with the Eightfold Path and, and cultivate a deep understanding of that. That's, how, that's what I would suggest, you know deepen your understanding right view of the path and the practice and practice. It's a gradual practice. It's not something that you you go, "Oh, I see." And then you walk out and it's not like that. That Cornfield's book, "After the, after the Ecstasy, the Laundry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does so that helpful? Okay. Anything else? Well, thank you guys for your... Oh, go ahead, please. Let me not cut you off.
1: I don't know how to phrase this question. I, um, I guess my question is about um, you said in order to relieve suffering we have to understand it.
0: You got to know what it is.
1: And so this is certainly a primer on basic understanding of suffering but in terms of particular individual suffering mm-hmm. and how to develop that compassion, mm-hmm. um, how, how would you suggest developing that in a way that enhances your own ability to relieve suffering, not only just understand it?
0: Well, let's start with the first part. How do you recognize, how do you, how do you cultivate compassion is to look for the suffering. Because when you, when you recognize suffering, the heart will open. We, it doesn't open when you don't recognize it, which is one of the reasons why we will plaster over somebody with a judgment you know, so that we won't see their pain.
1: Mm-hmm. And do we, you have to just recognize it or do you have when to When you recognize,
0: as soon as you recognize it, the response will be, in my experience, when you actually ex- recognize the suffering... In yourself as well.
1: That's what I'm, I think that's what I'm getting at, Iha. do you have to actually get into the feeling of the suffering with the person? Well, Whether, get you, in the you don't itself. have to.
0: You know, one of the things neuroscience is starting to identify are, are mirror neurons, which are our uh, resonance. How do we know what somebody else is thinking? Well, we don't really, but we sort of look at them and size them up, and posture, and expression, and are the pupils dot. I mean, we all this stuff we don't even recognize that we take in, and and we sort of know, and it's like that. You know, if somebody is suffering in pain, you know, with the pain of having lost a child. You don't have to have lost a child to recognize that that person is suffering. You can recognize the suffering. And then the response, depending on how skillful and how much, how I mean, you can respond as best you can. So thank you guys for your attention.